All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 461. Jason Lingren is with me and Fortune D. St. Germain returns. Uh, this is a bit, in a way, a leverage off the episode Jason and I did together, uh, 458, which was about social engineering and maybe more specifically what music has been used for in the modern age. And as we went into that idea, I'd been talking with Fortune. We've been talking about Adorno. If you remember from the episode, uh, he is fingered as the man who wrote the Beatles, a lot of the Beatles music. The point that was made in the Committee of 300 that the Beatles are a Tavistockian construction, in other words, put together to social engineer. I don't know how there's any denying that, no matter what parts of what has been laid down you want to accept. But we're going to extend that and we're going to go to new places. We're going to pull it into Greek and Latin uh, as the archetypes. We're going to go a lot of places. We're also going to finger. Uh, You may have heard me say that 1963 was the date they flipped the switch, which ironically is the year I was born. In other words, my lifetime basically represents the massive downturn, uh, which was engineered. And we're going to get into all these things. Welcome, Jason. And a very pleasant good morning. Fortune, how are you? How are you? (laughs) Uh, We're all good. You ready to jump in here? I think I'm just going to, we're going to touch on some of the things that were in the committee of 300 because you were aware of so many of the people named. uh, And I don't think there's much denying that almost everything written in that book has come to pass. What do you think? Almost everything has. And uh, that, that book is a masterpiece. Um, uh, research and this man is still alive uh, in his late eighties, and uh, it's it's very short and very succinct, but more full of information than almost anything I've ever seen before. And they, yes, um, I well, those names in that book are very well known to me, and I have also met and uh, uh, spoken at length to many of the people that are mentioned that in that book, but. Uh, Proceed. Go on from now. So just so everybody knows, Coleman is the author. The book is The Committee of 300. The writings, I I believe some of the writing and research came through the 80s from about 81 forward. The book we're mentioning was published in 91, I believe. And so there it is. You know, uh, hindsight is 2020. In other words, to have read that book back in the day, um, you'd have been thinking whatever you're thinking, but we can look back and see how much of it's come to pass. But in there, to leverage off the music episode we did, it's one of the few places that absolutely fingers Adorno as the man who uh, wrote the Beatles music. But you had some interesting things to say about his name as well. Do you remember? Well, he gives himself a middle name of Wiesengrund, uh, which basically is a philosophical phrase in German, meaning uh, the foundation of knowledge. Or uh, So that name is weird. That's not a name. That was something that was thrown in. So when you see Wiesengrund as somebody's middle name, uh, it starts to send up warning flags. And as cold and methodical as the Germans were, they weren't giving their children, nobody was naming uh, any part of their child's name as Wiesengrund. So uh, when I saw that middle name in German, I smelled a rat. Well, I I think... Would it be easiest to think of in English as wise ground, basically? Uh, the grounding of knowledge, the grounding of knowing. German is a little bit of a hard language, 
because it's a fusion language. You can put 20 words together to make one long word. It's for those German speakers out here uh, listening. Here's a word that most of you will know what it means, but you've never heard before. It's called eine Werte Zusammenfassung, meaning you put many words together to make one long word. So you could have 20 nouns together and it will make one long word. So uh, when I saw Wiesengrund, uh, the, the grounding of knowledge or foundation of knowledge, even better, uh, I just saw something very, very artificial in the construct of that person's name. So in the book, The Committee of 300, it's probably one of the earliest finger points uh, that I've ever seen that basically states uh, Theodore Wiesengrund Adorno uh, was the man who wrote the Beatles music, but it goes on to say that they were absolutely a Tavistock construct. Um, do you accept what Coleman said and the way he said it? I mean, it's very direct. There's really no margin there. He said what he said. There are certain things for the people listening now. Uh, when you have walked uh, in certain places with certain people and you come from a certain high-placed family and uh, the people that were coming and going from your home uh, because of the work of uh, my grandfather and other people in my family who are military and diplomat, uh, you grow up and you just see naturally things that because this is my life, it was natural to me. Just as someone who spends his whole life on a farm, knows everything about farming, or somebody, let's say, since we're talking about music, someone who grew up in a musical family whose parents were music professors, and they had people coming and going out of their home like Stravinsky and Rachmaninoff. For those people who grew up in that world, it was the easiest thing because that's what they grew up knowing. Uh, so when you start to see certain names uh, and certain places uh, at certain times, uh, and you you were there, and you know certain things. You start your the puzzle makes more sense when you put it together, especially when you saw these people at this place and that time. So uh, when we speak about what we're going into now is music, which is cooperation and harmony, chords all sorts of things put together to make uh, one piece of harmony in it. Polyharmony, polyharmonious, all different things put together to make one piece of work. 20, 30 uh, different instruments with different musicians playing, all in cooperation to make something beautiful. So for me, when these names come up and I start seeing the names in the book, uh, and I start hearing somebody saying this time, this date, that place. Not only did I smell a rat in Theodore Adorno's name, uh, I just see the fingerprints because I know what I'm looking for. So as a really good detective can go into a murder scene and he walks into a home and he says, this is staged. This place was scrubbed and sanitized and everything here is staged to make it look a certain way, but this is not what really has happened here. So for me, when I see certain names in certain places, I say, okay, it makes sense. And now I know what's going on because I know what those people represented and I know what their game was. So the implication here is that this was 
part of the uh, manufacturing of the counterculture movement of the 1960s. Would you say that's fair? Uh, the latter part, we're going to talk about many things today because you had the first episode on music. Yes, uh, something happens in 63, the death of Kennedy. 63, 64 is also the end of the 1950s. So the 1950s technically began in 48 and ended in 63, 64. Music changes. A president is killed. There is something very, very substantial about that year and that one year and time when things had changed in so many ways, uh, including music. So everyone should be aware what we're going to address here is the appearance that was given to engineer. We're not going to get into the lone gunman and all the other nonsense surrounding Kennedy, but what people should be aware, uh, and as one night when Fortune and I were speaking, so you have JFK, and I have absolutely, and I still absolutely say that's the day the flip, the, the switch was flipped. Everything was going to be different following this. But what most people don't realize is he gets killed on the 22nd, of uh, November in 63. The date is what the date is. On the 28th, this country experienced Thanksgiving to just give you a sense of where it happened. Roughly 80 days later, the Beatles come in uh, to Ed Sullivan. Also, I believe in the book Committee of 300, it is claimed that Sullivan was sent over to London and directed to do what he did to prep up the four mop top Beatles to come back on one of the biggest shows in the United States. Point is, is most people don't think about what happened right there starting in November of 63. The perception that a president has been blasted on film, well, they don't know about the film for, I think, 10 years, but shot in the head, basically, is what the country is told. Uh, an American president for the first time. And then 80 days later, everything else about counterculture begins to change. Uh, the Beatles hit the ground. And that's the thing you and I have talked to at length. What would you add? I mean, it really is an abrupt change to what was to what was going to be, wouldn't you say, Fortune? Yes, but we, you're also looking at another change of uh, post-World War I from the Victorian world to the Roaring Twenties, and that was also a change uh, in music, but not as big as the change that came from the 50s music going into what you would talk, call the British invasion. So Steiner, in some of the Steiner books, he refers to World War I or the people who, who covered what Steiner did later and were here for 9-11. They say World War I, what happened, World War I was a much bigger event than 9-11. 100% because it showed uh, the jackals uh, that uh, how easily the young people marched into the battlefields uh, to give their lives away. And uh, at the same time, when you read books about World War I, uh, people in the British government said the thing that was most useful to get the young people to enlist and go to war were the churches in England and the empire themselves. So zeroing back in on the center, um, there was, the, Jason and I went back and forth on this. Jason's big into music, as you know, he's a sound engineer, plays guitar as well as anyone. When we got to the part in the Committee of 300 where he claimed that all the rock music that was basically coming out of Tavistock or being kicked off was based on a 12 atonal scale, 
And when we looked that up, I, I mean, I still agree with the sentiment of, of that statement. But the main point here is, is I don't think most people have any concept of how much music was changed at that point. And so this is the period of time we're talking about, 63, early 64. It would be February 64, February 9, I believe, that the Beatles come to town of 64. But what's going on there is briefly recognized by the press when they start asking the Beatles, do you guys even consider yourself musicians? Or how can you consider yourself musicians? What you're doing is very simplistic. But that's what's been lost here, I think, Fortune, is people have no concept of how much more higher-minded music was. And as I mentioned, Coleman calls it a 12, a tonal scale to try to make the point. You see where I'm trying to go here? Yes. Uh, and we, we should also, as we're discussing these things, we should also go back in history and talk about music from Renaissance, the Greek and Roman times. You are reading a book on the echo of Greece and uh, the uh, Greek way by Edith Hamilton. We, we have to go back and show uh, our listeners and our friends who like all of this esoteric information what music really was, what the Renaissance brought to music, what the, the Age of Enlightenment brought to music. And, and then people really understand how much we've lost and how much has been stolen. The point being is that, like, I always try to figure out a way to demonstrate what the music we got, basically starting with the Beatles. It was a little earlier. There was some rock and roll in America in the 50s, but it really began to ramp up as the Beatles arrived. And it was engineered to do so. But what I try to do is say things like take a piece of sheet music by Beethoven or, or even more so Bach, where there's four lines. He's using two feet and two hands on an organ. It is so complex as to be almost, I mean, it's amazing to think that one person can read these four disparate lines of music and play one of the harmonies or melodies with each one of his extremities. The complexity of the music that had been common to the older folks in the 50s generation, it was completely inverted. Uh, Coleman calls it a 12-8 a tonal scale, I think, to make the point that it's not higher-minded stuff. It's not, you know, it's not in the same ballpark. How, how would you describe the switch down to what we call popular music now? We talk about this, and some of your listeners like the way I answer questions with the story, which is very flattering, so I say thank you to everyone on that. If you want to go to German, there's Kultur and there's Hochkultur, culture and high culture. There's also Unkultur, an unculture, or a Gegenkultur, because German is a very precise language. So we have all different sorts of words in German for philosophical terms that we don't have in other languages. Uh, we are describing what, what, what really was known as culture before uh, World War II was called high culture. Uh, which some of the uh, older uh, listeners will remember, they used to call it highbrow. And the, that's what the Hochkultur was about in all uh, eras. It was aiming for the highest. Uh, uh, in Crow's readings of Edith Hamilton, uh, beauty, uh, what, what was it? Excellence meant virtue and beauty, or beauty meant virtue and excellence. 
So that was the Greek ideal that carried over into the Renaissance, which means rebirth. And it meant to bring back the greatness of the ancient world that had been lost through the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. And music was a rebirth of that as well. And when you talk about beautiful music, it was not just for the upper classes. Hochkultur was supposed to be for everyone. And the world was making those strides through the enlightenment of the 1700s with music and the 1800s through the Victorian era. And things were moving forward. The world was becoming, it was on an upswing that meant a middle class. And uh, with a little more leisure time, that also meant that the middle class was able to enjoy more of the things that the upper class was uh, meant to enjoy. And before records, you had to go to the theaters to hear um, the music on your own. So you would have uh, seen Beethoven and Bach and Mozart play their instruments in the theaters with an orchestra, many of these people conducting the orchestra on their own, because these were songwriters. They wrote their music and they played their music and they knew how to conduct an orchestra. So. Uh, when uh, young Crow and I speak alone on the phone late in the evening, he talks about the great grand tour when you went to uh, the continent and you took the tour to see all of the great classic, the, the, the great things that were on the European continent, uh, which basically ended in the late 1800s, but it started in the late 1600s. And that was when young men went and they enlightened themselves by seeing all the great museums. And as I point out to Crow, that when you went on the grand tour, uh, you would have gone to these grand salons in France where hundreds of people would have been in some grand dame's home and they would have played music and you might have been sitting next to Voltaire or next to Mozart. And then you would have had a conversation with them and Mozart would have said, now I have to go and play for the, um, you know, for our uh, friends here for the evening. And he would have taken the piano or he would have gotten up and he would have conducted a group of musicians. And you would have been on the grand tour talking to Voltaire and Mozart. And those things do not exist anymore. And you would have also heard the finest music played by the people who wrote it. So you would have been hearing them play their instruments and the music the way they had intended it to be. Music at that time being a way to lift uh, the human condition, the spirit, uh, which is not really what we see in music now, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give a book drop here. It's been mentioned twice, Edith Hamilton. Uh, I don't know, a, a week ago, maybe a little longer, Fortune and I were speaking, and he gave me a reading list because I asked him. The books he gave me are about as good as I could have ever asked for. And for all you folks out there teaching the young people, um, some of the books I'm going to mention here, it's a must read. You've got to get your classics under your belt. I'm working on trying to be able to say at some point that all of the big events that are underhanded, that program society are based in a Greek archetype. In other words, lifted from classic myth. It's almost like saying, all you stupid cows out there don't know anything about the classics and we're sitting here using them badly to control you and you can't even recognize it. Here are the books. The author is Edith Hamilton. Echoes of Greece. 
the Greek way, echoes of Rome, the Rome way. And then there is a gorgeous hardback in the old style of hardbacks illustrated, which be wonderful for young people to learn the classics. It's called mythology. I think it's called Gods and Heroes. It's basically the main mythology give from Edith Hamilton. But what she does is normally when you go to read the classics, it's just so much to plow through. What she's done is boiled it down to what matters to the minds of the Western world who once relied on being educated in the classics. I mean, what would you add about the the reading list that I just gave? Uh, The Closing of the American Mind by Howard Bloom. That was a bestseller in the uh, mid to late 80s. And he will talk about music there. Um, Platonic and neoplatonic ideals. uh, Because if you think about it, music is philosophy. Uh, And uh, since we're very big into talking about what once was and how it became so corrupt, uh, now music is being used as propaganda and uh, as a tool for suppression of thought and suppression of the masses, uh, atonality, and also the vibration which the Nazis had discovered uh, and changed the actual uh, vibration and tonality of music, the weaponization of music as the Nazis uh, had discovered. Uh, and there were certain types of music uh, that they would let their populations listen to and other types of music that they would not. So when you look at uh, Nazism, uh, that's fascism, uh, uh, which is socialism, people think that fascism is a right-wing philosophy. It is a left-wing philosophy because fascism is socialism, and then you get communism, which is the sister to fascism, uh, which means no ownership. It's it's socialism on steroids. So communism and socialism or fascism are uh, basically sisters to one another. One's just a little more severe than the other. But where are we going with this? What the Nazis and the Soviets both discovered uh, was uh, that music was very important And they had banned certain forms of music that their people could listen to. So swing music and jazz were banned in Nazi Germany. Uh, Both the uh, Soviets and Nazis agreed on classical music, and they wanted everybody listening to that. So that even when you went into uh, the communist world, uh, you would uh, have concerts of in the finest music halls uh, that you could ever see. Uh, uh, And by the way, and the the Moscow subway was beautiful. uh, And they even had classical music being played by musicians in the Moscow subway and the the communist era at some of the major stations. Uh, But no rock and roll in the Soviet world uh, and no jazz. Uh, The Nazis only lasted till 45, but no jazz and no swing music for their uh, people. So there were certain things that the Soviets and the Nazis had discovered about music that made their way into the post-World War II uh, free world in the West after the fall of the Nazis. Why did they not allow rock and roll, jazz, and swing, and things like that? Was it because they recognized the weaponization, or what was it? Well, these were 
forms of decadent music. The Nazis and the Soviets both agreed that the uh, West uh, was decadent, and uh, they did not. Decadence is narcissism and hedonism, and those are uh, that that will unravel a culture faster than anything else. So, if we take a look at the music that we have today, just when you think you can't go any lower, because uh, I was there for the '60s and way before that. So, uh, when we thought we couldn't go any lower with Beatles and other music of that time, uh, each successive decade showed that you can keep going lower and lower. Now, what the bottom or breaking point is, I don't know, but they realized that this music was decadent and it was not good for the cohesiveness of a culture, especially totalitarian cultures where you wanted, you know, obedience to authority. So, uh, in order to promote or keep any good culture or any form of anything alive, you can't uh, seed it with poison. So when we go back to rock and roll, you don't have to say sex, drugs, and rock and roll, because rock and roll by its very term, uh, this came from the, uh, the black jazz uh, world where they used to say we're going to rock and roll, meaning we're going to have sex and take drugs. To rock meant have sex and roll to take drugs. So that came from the black jazz musicians, and that's what rock and roll became known as. So how could anything be any good if it means to have sex and take drugs? And when you went back and you played the fine music of the uh, 17 and 1800s, it was not supposed to be sexual. It was supposed to be higher-minded that would uh, uplift a culture and everybody listening to it. And uh, I spoke with uh, Crow about this when Nijinsky danced uh, pre World War One, and he was dancing as a ballet dancer. Some say he was one of the greatest male ballet dancers that ever lived. But if you take a look at the, his ballet in comparison to the ballet of today, it was not acrobatic. It was more focused on lines and elegance rather than the ballet today of a hundred years and more. But something happened. Nijinsky, who was some sort of twisted sister all along, he was such a narcissist that when he danced on stage as the music, he, he worked himself into such a fervor uh, and that even though it was a different era, he had an orgasm on stage because he was uh, such a lunatic. He got so into his dance and himself that the audience booed him and that the people in the audience, the few that did clap, were beaten up by the other members of the audience. That's how prim and proper the world of 1913 was. So when you danced in ballet to beautiful classic music, it was not supposed to be sexual. Those things were for your own home between you and your wife, you and your mistress. Uh, and as we're talking about the corruption of music, they used to say in some political debates, you will die of the gallows or of syphilis. And the opponent said to his um, political opponent while debating him, he says, that depends whether I embrace your philosophy or your mistress. You know, based on everything you just said uh, about rock and roll, where the terms, what it meant, isn't it interesting that the first band that's going to push 
this new style of music at a whole new level, basically for most of the world. They call it the Beatles. We've already covered this. They switch the, the spelling. So there's like a beat in the word. So like a musical beat or the beat movement, whatever. But since then, people have gone back to recognize there's a relationship to the winged beetle of Egypt. And I thought it was interesting that that's a dung beetle. So the rock it's rolling is a poop rock. Um, all the intention was there. But I wanted to ask you, when you were going through the German stuff, I've noticed that Wagner, or what they call Wagner, the classic composer, he's always held up by that part of the world. And I mean, there's not much to argue about. You hear these, these things he wrote, they're majestic, but he's held up as one of the greatest of all time. Is that about nationalism or is there something else there? Does the whole world recognize Wagner as some kind of a plateau? See, when we go, there are, there are things because we're living in such an age uh, and since my interviewer likes these German terms, the term in German is Schmutz und Dreck, garbage and uh, dung. I don't, I don't know, uh, dung and crap, Schmutz und Dreck. They both mean garbage and dung. So it's a little bit of a redundancy, but there's a little bit uh, because German has, like we say, Sturm und Drang. Uh, sometimes in Wagner's music or in Goethe's Faust, you can feel the Sturm und Drang, the pressure and the storm, the angst. Angst is a German word. So the the music, great music is, well, all music will um, bring out a certain emotion uh, because that is the nature of music. So... If you want to listen to the works of John Cage, if you call that music, which I do not because that's atonality, you would hear this larger than life. That's why Hitler liked Wagner, because it was like flying through the clouds. It was the type of music that uplifted. Now, you can do anything you want with any type of music and use it for propaganda. But the, the Wagner was a German, so of course the Germans were going to like their own. But the, the, the great German director there was Wilhelm Fortwängler, uh, uh, von Carrion. These were great German conductors at the time of Toscanini <coughs> and Serge Kusevitsky. And by the way, those are your four greatest conductors of the 20th century. Wilhelm Fortwängler, Serge Kusevitsky, uh, von Carrion, and Toscanini. So when you heard these people play, uh, there was just a sensitivity to the music in the way they conducted it. And the Germans always were very crisp and sharp with their uh, conducting of music. So that's why they say that the Berlin Philharmonic is uh, one of the best in the world. Uh, but we walked into these music halls and they were beautiful, as you would see in the time uh, of the French in the 17 and 1800s, and everything was sumptuous, and you were going into a different world uh, to hear great music played by the greatest uh, artists. And then you, you know, you dressed up for the evening, and you would have known many of the people there. You would have had supper before. Afterwards, you would have gone out with friends to drink champagne and discuss the music. And in that world, um, everybody that was listening to the music. Uh, part of being a lady, a gentleman meant you had to know how to dance, basic steps. 
You had to know how to carry a tune. You had to know how to play one instrument. So these were all people who were in the audience who uh, had studied music in some rudimentary form, could play one instrument and could carry a tune. And that was what part of being a lady or gentleman was about up until World War I. So you're going in, and as you saw in the movie Mozart, Mozart was writing his own operas. He could play his own instruments, and then he would go in and conduct the uh, orchestra, a full orchestra in his own opera. And of course, you know, they were vying for the patronage and the approval of the king at that time, who was Marie Antoinette's brother. And we're, we're talking about a very different world where everything was focused on beauty. Your clothes were beautiful. The music was beautiful. Uh, knowledge was beautiful. And now compare it to what we have today and everything is the lowest common denominator. All right, let me adjust my flip-flop here before I get Jason back in, Fortune. I want to try to do for the audience what you did for me the other night. I'm going to give you two songs, one of which Fortune gave me. That's by Arthur Fiedler, is the conductor. But go to YouTube, look up the Beatles song, Hold Your Hand, listen to it a little bit. Then go look up Arthur Fiedler. The song is named Jealousy. I know certainly there's a 1932 version. I think it's 38. 38. 38. 1938 version of Arthur Fiedler's Jealousy. And then there is a, is it 72 fortune? the 70s sometime in the 70s yes i think it's 72 but listen to those two things back to back and what was interesting is fortune i knew before i asked him he chose the 30s version but i can see the patina is like a misty golden hue on that 30s views i don't know it's it's atmospheric put it that way on the 70s version there's a little more percussion and the recording is a bit better but the point is close your eyes listen to the music and there's like a violin virtuoso up front on the fiddler just compare in your mind what was and then what was being brought forward with the new types of music that we've all kind of been used to it's almost like a wall you have to break through i mean before i get jason back in would you add anything about that fortune uh it's the same thing as today uh, here is the example what i would add is that off the fiddler of the Boston Pops, so we're talking about 34 to 40 years later, could not reproduce his own orchestral music um, as times. Uh, now, of course, Arthur Fiedler would have thought because he was older and was probably playing with a bigger orchestra that the 1970s version, because it might have been more towards a modern orchestra's liking, my choice would have been the late 30s version because there was a glow to the music uh, and a beauty to it. It was softer. So if you heard a pre-World War I orchestra played, the music would have been softer. Uh, it would not have been as loud as they play it today. How would I put this? Not so punctuated with percussion and things like that. Uh, you have to be careful of the, the drum because that's the boom, boom beat. That's the, that's the jungle beat of fornication and sex. And that was a no-no for music. So when we talk about, uh, let, let's do it this way. Uh, when I say to people in the opera world, 
the old timers will understand this. What is the difference between uh, Enrico Caruso and uh, Pavarotti? And the old timers, in a second, without knowing what that I, what I was going to ask, would say one screams and the other did not. That Caruso actually sang. It was called bel canto, beautiful singing. Uh, it wasn't screaming. Caruso belted. He was a screamer. Now, many opera people would not agree with that. Uh, but if you go back and you listen to the opera singers 100 years ago, a woman by the name of Gladys Swarthout, who is all but forgotten today, she did not scream. She did not belt. She was an opera singer. She was very famous. She did perhaps more for American opera in the 20th century than anyone else. Uh, and she also did some movies. Uh, so when we go into that, the, the music was softer. It wasn't, it wasn't screaming out at you like rock and roll music is. So if we go back to Mr. Crow's uh, age, where the, the cult of Bacchus or Dionysus and the ritual music of sex in terms of uh, ritual music to bring about ritual sex in certain forms of darker paganism, where the drum was used because it's the beat of sex or fornication. Just as when you go into uh, nightclubs for young people, it's dark and you will hear the um, very, very heavy bass beat, which they call the primal or the primordial beat, the beat of fornication, which for uh, normal people or in open society was not good. And that type of rhythm and beat was only practiced in darker forms of ritual magic and sex practices. Do you know anything else about the music of uh, what the Dionysian cults might have been playing or even later with the Bacchanalia? Well, see, wine, women, and song, uh, we know that term from the Greeks. So it's basically, you know, we say sex, drugs, and rock and roll. That was one of the things that Mr. Crow is reading, that the Greeks lost their love of uh, beauty, which we said was virtue and excellence, and they gave, uh, they gave it up for chasing wine, women, and song. The culture had been corrupted. Uh, decadence has taken over. No society has ever survived once the dry rot set in, once decadence set in, no culture had ever survived, has ever survived it. Um, and it's built in, I think, because once the decadence comes in, it's like a cancer. But these were certain cults that were... Um, uh, associated in the ancient world, and they were not looked upon fondly, and you did not tell people that you belonged to a sex or a death cult. So when we look at the goddess Kali in India, um, it's no accident that Kali, as you know from Raiders of the Lost Ark, was the goddess of sex and death, or love and death. Uh, and in the Dionysus or the, the Bacchanalian cults where this music was perpetrated um, and people were given enough wine and maybe some other good stuff, the Olympian brew, which was a narcotic to get them and loosen their inhibitions, 
and then you'd play the crazy music so that everybody got to feeling good. And then it went to the ritual sex and some cults carried it further after the ritual sex, human sacrifice was performed. So uh, when you get to certain songs, um, since uh, most of the people listening to this will know the song, you listen to the song Bohemian Rhapsody. Everything in that song is dark. And even uh, my two friends listening did not know the song was about a murder trial because the young people don't listen to words today. They listen to the music. So it, the, the whole tonality and the whole beat of Bohemian Rhapsody is just permeated with sex and it's fast. And as the 20th century progressed, music became faster and faster. Uh, before the World War I, things were much slower. The music was not supposed to be played fast. And as the world sped up, music sped up. So as you know, if you're driving down the road at 120 miles an hour, um, either the, the car is going to, the engine is going to blow very quickly or you're going to uh, have an accident very quickly. And that's what's going on with music. It, and that's why you see all these people that sang rock and roll, uh, because as we said, it means to have sex and take drugs. Uh, it has the essence of death and destruction built into it. So if that's what you purport and that's what you live, you are going to wind up like many of these people who practice that music and lifestyle. And uh, when you read about this in the closing of the American mind, he'll talk about Plato and music and uh, how important certain types of music were to the perpetuation of culture and what type of music would be played to destroy a culture, um, especially in youth culture, which there was no such thing as youth culture till um, the 50s. So we have teenager and rock and roll, two phrases that come about in the 50s that did not exist before, because before you were either an adult or a child. So uh, that we get teen age coming in the between age, betwixt and between. So when we talk about various forms of music, um, philosophers, people in the Bacchanalian or Dionysian cults, the cults of wine, women, and song, they would have... Um, been very comfortable using some of this rock and roll music that you hear today because it would have been perfect for their sex orgies. Mama just killed a man, put a gun against his head, pulled the trigger, now he's dead. And it's interesting how easily the opening idea gets lost. But uh, I'm fortunate because I started to realize that so many of the programmatic ideas or the Tavistockian things pushed seem to have a basis in the classics, which nobody has taught and almost nobody knows anymore, which is why we brought up the Edith Hamilton books. If you're interested in educating yourself or you're young, you need to grab those books. But here's the thing. The Dionysian Bacchus idea, when you go back and you know, I'm, I'm lucky that I'm being mentored by someone like Fortune, you begin to realize things that you didn't. And even though I knew about Demeter or Ceres, Dionysus or Bacchus, those are the Latinization and the Greek originals. Um, these are earth-bound gods, and different from the other ones, they have suffering. 
that suffering is tied to winter. So to Demeter, or what's later called Ceres, and it has to do with the Elysian Mysteries, uh, which apparently they claim made the world a much better place, though I don't think we know that much about it. Um, we get the word cereal as an example from Ceres about the harvest, but there's a suffering built into this. And so on the Dionysian Bacchus side, wine can make you happy. It can lift your spirits. It can do all these things, but everybody knows you can go too far. You can become a drunkard and, you know, people can get hurt and all these, it's it's a double-edged sword, but to know the archetype is to know that the suffering and the downside is built right into it. And the first time that I began to realize this was true is in the episode we did where I showed CNN used the ancient myth of truth down the well to announce to the world that we are coming out big here and we're going to lie to you for a living. And they did it with a Greek myth. But Jason, is there anything I know you're going to want to comment on what he just said about rock and roll? Well, what I'm kind of curious about is having lived through so many decades now in your mind, how much has the decadence set in? Like, where are we at now? How much have we fallen? What have you seen and experienced? Well, let's do it this way. To start on a good note, um, because for those who are listening, they know that my specialty is alchemy. If you have no attachment to something, a con man can only con the greedy. When rock and roll came out, we know that it's rockabilly. It's combined with certain elements of black jazz. And everything has its time and place. Elvis, 54. Before 1954, there was technically no rock and roll. Elvis could not be shown on the Ed Sullivan show uh, because of the gyration of the hips. So if you watch people dance the tango in 1912, as Vernon and Irene Castle introduced it to the world, a man and woman were not allowed to touch groins or pelvises They danced closely, but you were not allowed to press up against uh, a man and woman. There was no gyration uh, of the hips. So they were not, Ed Sullivan was not allowed to show Elvis swaying his hips. And there were many parents who wouldn't let their children watch it. And I know this for a fact because I was there. So I remember that moment. For me, it never really held anything because I came from a more sensible world. Well, when I had already seen that, uh, I knew what they were up to. There are certain elements, if you look at doo-wop music and certain little songs uh, that are very, very innocent, uh, even though it fell under the title of rock and roll or doo-wop. But the sexuality is built into it, and uh, all sorts of things were brought into songs in the 50s at the rock and roll time that were not said earlier um, in songs. There was no such thing as teenage love. So if we look at things as um, music being uh, tonality and beauty and harmony, you were either at 18 a child or an adult. But by the age of 18 in a normal world, not too long ago, you were already an adult and it would have been expected that you acted like one. So walking around singing crazy music and getting drunk, that was, they were called Saturday Night Rowdies, Libertinism, uh, where you were going back to the ways of getting drunk and, you know, acting like a naughty boy. 
and if you, you want to think about it, when we go back and we look at um, one of the reasons, you know, the decadence set into Rome and they could not stem it. Once you're in that net, like the web of Ariadne, it's very, very hard to get out because part of the disease is that it corrupts your psyche where you don't want to get out and that you know it's destroying you. It's like a poisonous lover that you can't resist. You know the woman and the man is destroying you, but the sex is so good you go for it anyway, knowing that in the end it will take you down. So this is what we are listening to today. And when you go to the electronics and the techno music, go to your society today and look. They are lighting up the world and the music is getting louder and faster. Everything is becoming a 24-hour carnival and an orgy. And it's meant to be that way because the end result is the destruction of the masses or the subjugation. So music, as we say, can be used for many purposes. We, you know, you can put on some nice music and you can uh, have a glass of champagne with a person you love. And you can have a quiet night listening to beautiful music. So uh, music can be many, many things on the spectrum. Uh, it's what we do with it. But since this society is not the society of 1900 anymore, and uh, this, the music is a reflection of our society. So if nobody was buying it, it would not be there. So obviously this is what people want. And as you look across the world, you see all of the beautiful things like opera and classical music. It's all dying. People go to the concerts and they don't even dress up anymore. They don't even make that a beautiful experience. And this had been a conversation about beauty recently uh, because many, many years ago, I danced on ice and roller skates and ballroom danced. And you can see something that is going on in all uh, of the um, dancing. It's ballet, ballroom dancing, ice skating, and roller dance. Uh, it's all getting faster and flashier. And the uh, even in ballet, the traditional forms and lines, you watch old ballroom dances like the castles, and you compare them to the ballroom dances today. The elegance is being lost and everything is being given over to acrobatics and uh, flashiness at the loss of beauty and true art. All right, we're coming to the top of hour one here. I'll say a couple things as we wrap up. First of all, the episode where I show the Greek archetypical myth being used to launch CNN into the stratosphere, which is still here, is episode 171, Truth Down the Well. I will further say, Jason and I have done an awful lot of shows where we broke down by decade. Isn't it interesting? Uh, and I'd never really thought about it. Fortune marked Elvis at 54. What do we get exactly one decade later? Second month of the decade, 64 comes the Beatles. You see how the decades are neatly <laughs> segmented. But for all those people who go out and listen to the Arthur Fiedler, that's an easy one where it's just beautiful and it's complex. And there's something there that's missing from what we're listening to now, mostly. But what happened to me when I went back to classical music is I was spoiled. I said, where's the bridge? Where's the hook? Where's the bombastic beat? 
But what I learned is I kept coming back to it and I finally broke the spell. And the way that I did it is I put on the music and I would try in my mind, what instrument is that in the orchestra that is playing right now? What is creating this sound? And slowly I got back to being able to appreciate the complex nature and the beauty at that level. Anyhow, Jason, I'm going to wrap. Anything you want to get in? Yes. First, folks have been asking about the sponsored links that we're always mentioning. They have been moved. There is now a button at the top of the main page, fifth in from the left. So if you go all the way to the left under where it says Crow 777 Radio, you start with home on the left, then about, shoot the moon movie, shop, and then sponsored. When you click on sponsored, you will get all of those little images to take you to the sponsored links. Now for hour two, I would like to ask Fortune if there's anything he can tell us about Tavistock that we on the outside might not be privy to. Okay, we're also going to pick up with the idea of the sophists who could be and have been blamed by those who look back at what's happened. We're going to come up with both of these eyes. We'll open with Tavistock and the sophists, and it's an interesting conversation. I've had it a couple times with Fortune, but that does bring hour one of episode 461 to a close. Hour one is free to everybody at crow777radio.com, C-R-R-O-W, 777radio.com. Members know to log in for the full episode. If you are a member, you get the two-hour film, Shoot the Moon for Free, which has won 10 awards at this point, believe it or not. Uh, Even though I called NASA a liar for a living, it has still won 10 awards. But there it is. Uh, I hope to meet you on the other side. It's going to be an interesting second hour with Fortune to St. Germain. And I'd like to wish each and every one of you a happy, healthy, and higher-minded new era. Cheers.
Belief is the enemy of knowing.